Hello everyone and welcome to the history of Tammany Hall, episode 2, The Founding. And we're back! At the end of the first episode, I said that new episodes would be coming along every two weeks. Clearly, that was a lie, and for that, I apologize. However, I'm hoping that I've got a better handle on scheduling now that summer is wrapping up, and I've got a few episodes under my belt. Still, I'm going to refrain from making any promises on timing of future episodes. Anyhow, sorry for the delay, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Our story begins on May 12, 1789. On that date, at least according to Tammany Hall lore, a group of New York merchants and middle-class artisans gathered in Barden's Tavern in Lower Manhattan near Bowling Green. Their purpose was to proclaim the formation of a new social club and fraternal order, which they called the Society of St. Tammany. The group was named for the legendary Native American chief Tamanend, or Tammany in an anglicized form. There was a historical Tamanend, who was a leader of the Delaware tribe in what is now eastern Pennsylvania. In the 1680s, Tamanend met with William Penn, who was looking to purchase the land that would later become Philadelphia. At this meeting, Tamanend allegedly baked three dumplings for his guests in a show of hospitality. In response, Penn redesigned his family's coat of arms to incorporate three white balls. These balls can still be seen on the crest of the University of Pennsylvania. So there's a fun little factoid for you. Over the course of the 18th century, British settlers created a whole host of tall tales and legends about this chief Tamanend. According to a lecture given by Dr. Samuel Mitchell, an early member of the Tammany Society, Tamanend was a great hunter who fought duels with evil demons, battled rattlesnakes, and discovered tobacco, which he duly cultivated. By the 1770s, proponents of independence adopted the image of Tamanend as a symbol of American national identity. In time, some even called for his canonization as the country's patron saint, though, of course, there is no reason to believe that the real Tamanend was Christian. As calls for American independence picked up steam, a group of Pennsylvania patriots organized the Sons of St. Tammany, a sort of local offshoot to the Sons of Liberty. St. Tammany clubs soon popped up throughout the other colonies. During the Revolutionary War, some Pennsylvania regiments carried a flag with the image of St. Tammany into battle. To us in the 21st century, this American identification with a mythical Native American leader seems bizarre and really downright offensive. In all likelihood, Dr. Mitchell's folktales did not have any basis in actual Native American lore. Instead, they were probably created out of whole cloth. So why were these early Americans so interested in aligning themselves with a made-up version of Native American culture? Remember, at this very moment, many of these same people were fervent advocates of westward expansion and the expropriation of indigenous territory, which would result in the mass destruction of actual Native American societies and cultures. So, how should we reconcile this rhetorical idealization of Native American culture with the brutal realities of American behavior? There's really no single answer to this question. However, I'd say this phenomenon is best seen as part of the larger development of a distinct American national identity. 
Many American patriots in the revolutionary era were eager to distinguish their country from the European society and culture out of which it had grown. As such, they turned their backs on European iconography and instead promoted historical figures and symbols associated with the Western Hemisphere. Native American culture could thus be valorized as a tradition distinct to the New World. So, out with St. George, the patron saint of England, and in with St. Tammany, the patron saint of America. It was also around this same time that Christopher Columbus came to be seen as a national hero. Indeed, for a time, the Tammany Society was also known as the Columbian Order. Today, of course, we would probably balk at the idea of lumping Columbus and a Native American chief together in the same category. However, from the vantage point of the late 18th century, both were seen as heroic figures who had made their names in the New World. Furthermore, many American patriots of this era hoped to craft a new national self-image that was suffused with the Republican virtues of simplicity, hard work, and egalitarianism. This was meant to stand in contrast to a decadent and aristocratic Europe. In this context, Native Americans were placed into the long-standing trope of the so-called noble savage. While Americans tended to dismiss Native culture as backwards and inferior, they also cherished an image of Native American society that was egalitarian and free of the excessive luxuries that had supposedly debilitated the old world. So, when patriotic Americans employed Native American imagery, they were really projecting aspects of what they saw as their own national character. The American mindset of this period was well captured in the words of one Massachusetts reverend in the 1780s, quote, in the pre present age, our country is in a medium between barbarity and refinement. In such an age, the minds of men are strong and vigorous, but neither enfeebled by luxury nor shackled by authority. End quote. All right, so let's get back to our friends who gathered in Barden's Tavern in May 1789. What exactly were they hoping to accomplish with this new club of theirs? Above all, the founders of New York's Tammany Society were motivated by intense patriotic sentiments. Just a few weeks earlier, on April 30th, George Washington had been sworn in as the first president under the nation's newly ratified constitution. New York was the nation's temporary capital, and Washington's inauguration had taken place just down the street at Federal Hall on Wall Street. In the aftermath of the inauguration, the city was filled with a deep feeling of patriotic fervor. Many hoped that a new era of national unity was about to begin. This was certainly the dominant ethos of the early Tammany Society. In the words of one member, their, quote, purpose was patriotic and purely republican, end quote. They hoped to foster a sense of civic and national pride through regular meetings filled with eating, drinking, and the occasional long-winded toast. At this early date, the Tammany Society was far from the sharp-elbowed political machine it would become in later days. Instead, it began as an explicitly nonpartisan social organization in which people with different political views and from different social backgrounds could gather. One historian has compared the early Tammany Society to the modern Rotary Club. 
Benevolent societies of this type were fairly common in the days of the early Republic. Influenced by the Freemasons, these groups often employed elaborate terminology and secret ceremonies. One of the most famous of these organizations, the Society of the Cincinnati, was open only to former officers in the Continental Army and their descendants. The Cincinnati were highly controversial at this time. Some contemporaries saw the exclusive organization as contrary to the country's Republican principles and feared that its membership, inherited as it was through primogeniture, would form the basis of an American aristocracy. Tammany, in contrast, explicitly presented itself as an alternative to the society of the Cincinnati. As one later commentator put it, Tammany was, quote, based on democratic principles. Its membership was not determined by caste, but that all might mingle on the basis of manhood rather than that of wealth or culture, end quote. While many of Tammany's early leaders were wealthy merchants and professionals, its broader membership included much of what was then known as the middling sort. These were artisans, shopkeepers, and other self-sufficient workmen. In general, this group was deeply patriotic, opposed to inherited privileges, and proponents of the economic interests of small-scale producers. Later historians have called this ideology artisan republicanism. In the early days, Tammany's membership fees were kept intentionally low, between $2 and $8 based on the individual's ability to pay. Quarterly dues were limited to only 24 cents. This meant that a broad selection of New York's population could join the society, and by 1791, Tammany's membership had grown to over 300. Tammany's earliest leaders were somewhat strange figures to be at the head of such an avowedly patriotic and democratic club. William Mooney, regarded as the founder of the Tammany Society, was a successful upholsterer and paper hanger. It was rumored that Mooney was a one-time loyalist who had defected from the Continental Army to the British in 1776. However, these claims were never proved, and by the 1780s, he was espousing a deeply patriotic and largely apolitical form of American republicanism. John Pintard was widely viewed as the true organizational and ideological force in the early Tammany society. Pintard was one of the wealthiest merchants in New York City, an associate of William Dewar, Alexander Hamilton's friend and assistant at the Treasury Department. In time, Dewar's fraudulent financial wheelings and dealings would result in one of the first great financial crises in American history. Despite these connections, Pintard was largely responsible for Tammany's avowedly democratic ideology. He wrote that Tammany was meant to be, quote, a political institution founded on strong Republican basis, whose democratic principles will serve in some measure to correct the aristocracy of our city. As part of this goal, Pintard established the Tammany Museum, which was meant to make objects of national and patriotic significance available to the population at large. As Pintard wrote in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, this institution would, quote, collect and preserve whatever relates to our country in art or nature, 
as well as every material which may serve to perpetuate the memorial of national events and history. End quote. The museum was something of a dud. Its collection largely consisted of stuffed animals and bizarre curios like a six-inch horn that supposedly grew out of a woman's head. Uh, Pintard ended up selling the museum in 1795, and after a few decades, much of the collection would find its way into P.T. Barnum's famous American museum. Pintard also doubled down on Tammany's use of faux Native American imagery. Tammany's members were called Braves, and they were organized into 13 tribes, which would ultimately gather in wigwams. The leaders of these tribes were called Sachems, and in theory at least, the President of the United States was considered the Great Grand Sachem. As silly as these names sound, they would prove surprisingly resilient. Newspapers would refer to Tammany members as Braves well into the 1960s. These strange titles were accompanied by an elaborate system of code words and initiation handshakes. Pintard even developed a new calendar for the Tammany Society. All events would be dated from Tammany's founding, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and Columbus's first voyage to America. The four seasons were renamed the Season of Blossoms, the Season of Fruits, the Season of Hunting, and the Season of Snows. Months were named after moons. So, according to historian Morris Werner, the full name of a single date could read Season of the Fruits, 17th Day of the 7th Month, Year of the Discovery, 361st, of Independence, 78th, and of the Institution, the 65th. Not the most practical dating system, it must be said. Uh, so yeah, we should really regard all of this as deeply silly. I don't think we should look for any meaning in this funny calendar. It wasn't like the French revolutionaries who famously redesigned their calendar so it would uh, be on a more rational and ordered basis. Instead, I think this just emphasizes that Tammany was primarily a social organization at this time. People have always liked to have had a fun time getting together, speaking in secret codes, and dressing in funny clothes. Any political message was really secondary. Once a month, Tammany's members would meet at the society's headquarters, at this point just an alternating series of taverns in Lower Manhattan. Here, they would eat, drink, tell stories, sing songs, and discuss current events. Tammany soon became best known for its parades on patriotic holidays like the 4th of July, Washington's Birthday, and Evacuation Day, that is the anniversary of the British departure from New York on November 25, 1783. On these events, Tammany's members would march up and down Broadway dressed up in Native American costumes. Uh, as a side note, a later nickname for Tammany members would be bucktails because of the rabbit skins they wore as hats. Um, a distinguished member of the society would then give a lengthy speech on some patriotic theme or another. The day would then culminate with a massive outdoor banquet along the East River. By the mid-1790s, these parades were among the most anticipated events on New York's social calendar. 
One other notable feature of this early iteration of the Tammany Society was its deep-seated nativism. In the future, of course, Tammany would become strongly associated with New York's immigrant communities. However, at this early stage, the Tammany Society's patriotism was tinged with a good amount of xenophobia. According to the Society's original constitution, Tammany was exclusively for American brethren, and only people born in the United States could hold leadership positions. In part, this nativism reflected Tammany's deeply held anti-British outlook. Many of New York's wealthiest citizens were committed Anglophiles who treasured their social, cultural, and economic ties to the erstwhile mother country. This was an outlook most famously associated with Alexander Hamilton. However, a bitter antipathy towards the British lingered throughout much of the rest of post-independence American society, and Tammany certainly reveled in this kind of Anglophobia. However, it should be noted that the British were not the only group on the receiving end of Tammany's xenophobia in this period. As we'll see in future episodes, Tammany was deeply suspicious of newcomers from Ireland and Germany who arrived in New York in ever-increasing numbers throughout these years. As was common in the early American Republic, this nativism was coupled with a deep sense of anti-Catholicism. It would be decades before Tammany agreed to support any Catholic candidates for office. Alright, so I think that's where I'll leave things for now. Let's enjoy this image of the Young Tammany Society as a good-humored and patriotic, if clearly xenophobic, social club. Next time, we'll broaden our lens a bit and take a peek at the social and political context in which Tammany was founded. What exactly did New York look like back in 1789? Uh, then we'll see Tammany take its first tentative steps onto the American political stage. In the meantime, uh, please do get in touch with any thoughts or feedback. You can email me at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com or follow uh, the show at Twitter and Instagram. I've already heard from a few of you, and that really just tickled me pink. I especially want to thank those of you who gave some tips on the first episode's audio. That was very helpful for a podcasting novice like me, and I've tried to address those issues in this episode. So, until next time, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.